We have the opportunity this morning to dig into the Word of God, and I want you, if you will, to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark 10. We have already begun to look at this portion of God's Word in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 27. And I've entitled the message, that is, the message that I gave some weeks ago on this passage and the message this, this morning as well, Jesus' perspective on the rich. Because there is much here that talks to us, challenges us with regard to riches. And we'll discuss that in a moment. But this text also has a lot to say about the doctrine of salvation. And I want you to know that this particular portion of God's Word is so clear with regard to the matter of salvation that it is deafening by its shouting to us of the message of entrance into the kingdom of God. Let me read this text for your hearing so that we might have the setting for our morning. Beginning in Mark 10, verse 17, as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus had a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. This text comes right out of the teaching of Jesus regarding what I said to you last time was the childlikeness of the believer. That is to say that when anyone enters the kingdom of God, it will always be on the basis of humble dependence. Humble dependence. The believer will be marked 
at the very outset of his entrance into the kingdom of God as well as throughout the entirety of his life in the kingdom as one who is completely and humbly dependent upon God for everything, especially with regard to the matter of entrance into God's eternal kingdom. And one of the things that I think Mark is doing when he gives us this very clear word on the childlikeness of the believer before this particular text that we read this morning was to give us a contrast. A contrast between the humble and the contrite person who is characterized that way because he realizes that he doesn't even enter into the kingdom of God unless he comes with his hands wide open, clamoring for all of God's grace, recognizing he has nothing within himself, nothing to offer God, and that he comes humbly and repentantly into the kingdom. That being contrasted with those who have a lot of riches, who don't see themselves as having a lot of needs, who are proud and arrogant and boastful, and who often, frankly, aren't even thinking about entrance into the kingdom of God because they don't think they need to. And I think Mark has put these two texts for us together to show us that very clear contrast. And when we come to this particular portion of his word, I want you to notice that in the context of verses 17 to 27, we're seeing what we could say is salvation coming through four channels or four aspects of knowledge. And that's our outline for the morning. You're going to see in the time that we have remaining that there are four aspects of knowledge that we must understand regarding entrance into the kingdom as illustrated with Jesus and his discussion with this rich young ruler. Four channels of knowledge, four aspects. We might even say that salvation is through dot, dot, dot. Salvation is through. It's through something. And in this text, we find out exactly what it is through. And I'll give you the first one right now. Number one, this first aspect of knowledge is contained for us in verses 17 to 18, and I'll say it like this. Salvation only comes, entrance into the kingdom of God only comes when we recognize that through God's goodness comes the knowledge of man's badness. Through God's goodness comes the knowledge of man's badness. That's the first aspect of knowledge that we must gain if we're going to ever hope to enter the kingdom of God. Notice verses 17 and 18. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, if you're like me, when you have read that particular statement over the years, 
it has become quite puzzling. Because if you and I know anything about evangelical theology, we know that the person of Jesus Christ is inherently good, isn't he? That during his earthly ministry, and in fact, obviously, even before that time and throughout eternity future, there is no sin in the person of Christ. He's the epitome of goodness. And so if that is true about Christ, and if this rich young ruler comes to Christ and refers to him as good teacher, why would Christ respond the way he did? Why would he say, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus Christ himself is the epitome of good. Then why wouldn't he accept this obvious assent to who he really is? Why does he seem to steer this man away from calling him good teacher? Well, I think the reason is obvious. The reason is <clears throat> that after Jesus had blessed the children that were on his lap in the preceding passage that we studied some weeks ago now, he's setting out on his journey and he comes to a place where a man literally runs up to him, a rich young ruler, according to all the Gospels when you put them together. And he comes up to him, no doubt during a time when Christ was walking along the path with his disciples, no doubt talking to them again about the kingdom and aspects of the kingdom. And he came up, and he came up to him and inquired of him how to inherit eternal life. And by doing so, he gave him a designation, and that designation was good teacher. And Jesus, knowing all things, knowing what was in the heart of this rich young ruler, even before he came up to him, immediately begins the process of evangelizing this rich young ruler. And one of the first things he does, one of the first aspects of this rich young ruler's understanding and his knowledge that he must acquire is the distinction between those who are good and those who are bad. And Jesus wants him to realize right off the bat in this evangelistic encounter that the only one who is good is God alone and that all other persons are inherently bad. He's not saying that because he's a person, he's bad and that God the Father alone is good. He, of course, is by his very nature good and implicitly this tells us that by his very statement that he is including himself in that divine essence with the Father. He is in essence good, but he wants this rich young ruler to understand beyond the shadow of a doubt that any goodness is to be ascribed to God alone. You say, why would he want him to know that right off the bat? Well, because of the dialogue that will follow. The dialogue that will follow will reveal that, th that this rich young ruler really doesn't understand what goodness or badness is all about. He's going to realize immediately from the lips of Jesus himself that if there's a great chasm, a great gulf affixed between the essence of who is good or what is good and the essence of 
who is bad or what is bad, that that gulf is so wide, so expansive, so long, so far, that on his own, man could never, ever, ever hope to be good. It's impossible. Man in and of himself cannot be good. Is that an aspect of your knowledge or my knowledge or the world's knowledge that must be gained? Do we live in a world that understands the essence between goodness and badness? Between who is God because he in his essence is good and who is man because in his essence man is bad, depraved, a sinner, selfish, by nature and by choice. I read just this morning the newspaper in which our own president, Bill Clinton, spoke about the tragedy that two men within our armed forces were involved in a struggle in which one young 18-year-old army enlisted man killed another because of this man's homosexuality. And it caused President Clinton to review his policy of a don't ask, don't tell policy in the military that if you are a professed homosexual, uh, you don't talk about it, you don't profess it, you don't speak about it, because if you do, then obviously trouble awaits you. And apparently, one of these men determined that one of those in his own platoon was a homosexual and he killed him. And he was just court-martialed. And one of the statements that our president made, which I found very interesting in light of his own profession of the Bible and his profession of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, was this. This is a tragic thing. This is a terrible thing. This particular person who killed another, he could not have by nature thought this way or done this. It was something that he had to be taught from someone somewhere. And I read that statement and I said, you know what? Our own president desperately needs to understand this passage. Because this passage is saying that there is a great gulf affixed between goodness and badness. And that there's only one, God himself, in the person of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, who is the essence of goodness. No sin, no tainting of evil of any kind. And then there is in a second and only second category, man. And all men are infected with badness. It's our very nature. It's our very thoughts. It's our very attitudes. And I think what Jesus is doing here is setting the stage for this rich young ruler to understand the inherent depravity of all men, especially himself. If only God is good, if that's what Jesus is driving toward, if God is the ultimate goodness, if He is the standard by which all good is measured, then there is only truly one who is good, and that's God alone, because alone is God untainted by sin of any kind. And therefore that defines goodness, and this rich young ruler must understand right off the bat that any profession of his own goodness 
is out of line, out of bounds. He's preparing this young man. Because this man says in verse 18, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I don't want to make too much out of the word inherit, but I think it's important because in verse 15, in that earlier section, Jesus doesn't talk about the kingdom of God as an inheritance, does he? He says regarding the kingdom of God, it's not an inheritance. It, it is a reception. It is a gift. It is something that you receive. It's not something that you do anything to work toward. It is not something that you inherit because of who you are or what you have done. And I might think that his own question is flawed. What must I do to inherit eternal life? In our parlance, in our language, we might say this. Nothing, because you can't inherit it. Because you can't be good in and of yourself. There's no capacity to respond in any way that means any goodness whatsoever so that you, in and of yourself, can inherit eternal life. And so I think the first thing we need, we need to notice about this man is that he is attempting to inherit eternal life, not to receive it. It is the reception of eternal life as a gift, not the doing of good in order to inherit it. Why? Because man could never do anything good in reality. You say, well, wait a minute, what about all of the people who do what appears to be good in our world? Giving of money, the giving of time, the giving of their resources. Doesn't that count for anything? The answer is this, while it may help man on a horizontal level, while it may be profitable, and while it may certainly be better than people doing all of the bad that they could possibly do to other people in this world, with regard to eternal life, with regard to the reception of it, with regard to being right with God, no one is good. No one can do good. No one responds with the kind of goodness that Jesus is referring to here. He says that is reserved for God alone. So, first thing we realize very, very clearly is this. Through God's goodness, through that reality, we understand, we realize, we come to the knowledge of man's badness. Secondly, in verses 19 and 20, we see the second aspect of this knowledge, and it is this. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Of sin, And you remember I spoke about this in great detail last time, so I don't really need to say a lot about it here. But in verses 19 and 20, the Bible says that when in answer to this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, Jesus said, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. I told you last time that this is a very strange and provocative response on the part of Christ to tell anyone, based on a question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, to do something, to obey something, to do some kind of work. I mean, preacher, you just said 
that there is no amount of good works that anyone could ever do that would ever gain them entrance into the eternal kingdom of God. Is Jesus reversing the very message of the gospel? The answer is no. What he's doing is he is taking the standard of the law of God and he's placing that standard as high as it is and as lofty as it is and as great as it is and as utterly stupendous as it is. And he's comparing this man's heart to total and complete law-keeping. In essence, he's saying this. You think that you can inherit eternal life by doing something. That's what's in your heart. I know that. And so now I'm going to tell you, this is the standard if that's the basis for entrance into the kingdom. If that's the basis, if that's the requirement, if that's what you're after, I'm going to ask you this. Have you done all these things to their utter perfection? Have you kept the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments? Have you obeyed in all points? Have you always loved your mother and father? Have you never defrauded? Have you never borne false witness? Have you never stolen? Have you never committed adultery, whether in reality or in your heart? Have you never murdered, whether in reality or in your heart? Have you done this? If you've done this, if you've followed the law of God, if you've done everything perfectly, then in theory, yes, someone like that could inherit, could earn, could deserve eternal life. Have you done it? That standard is so high. Have you ever thought about even making an attempt to follow the law of God to its ultimate perfecting work? I don't know about you, but shortly after I was born, even though I didn't realize it, I was out. And then when I began to learn and grow and understand what decision-making was all about, I was out. And when I realized as the gospel came to me by the power of God's Word that when I finally figured out the essence of what sin was, I was out. And here is yet a rich young ruler who's amassed apparently quite a small fortune, who's apparently a dignitary in the place in which he lives and moves, and who is a young man who no doubt has virility and strength. And he comes to Jesus and asks that very question, would he not, if he understood the law, say, I'm out? I'm out. You mean to tell me that if I can inherit eternal life, it has to be this way? I can't do it. I can't fulfill the law in that way. There is, there is no opportunity. There is no strength. There's no amount of money. There's no amount of nobility that would ever allow me the opportunity to actually inherit the kingdom of God through this kind of knowledge. In fact, the kind of knowledge that you're speaking of, 
total obedience to the law of God, that doesn't bring me righteousness. That doesn't bring me into the kingdom. You know what that brings me to? That brings me to the place of acknowledging that I can't do it. This is, this is bringing, bring, bringing me to the knowledge of my sin. And that's precisely one of the ways that the law slays us. It brings us to the knowledge of our sin. That is precisely why the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, because, listen to this, by the works of the law, by not murdering, by not committing adultery, by not stealing, by not bearing false witness, by not defrauding, by honoring your mother and your father, by doing everything like that and more from all that the law says I'm mandated to do, by the works of that kind of law, the Bible says no flesh will be justified in His sight. No flesh. No exceptions. No excuses, no exceptions. No qualifications. No flesh will be justified in God's sight. Why? Paul says, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's why when I read to you last time from Romans chapter 7, Paul said, I would never have known what coveting was all about unless there was a law, a law that said, do not what? Covet. I would not have even known those things. And as I said last time, the, the very law, whatever that law may be, where someone over me, someone in authority says, don't do that, what does that bring me to the place of wanting and desiring to do? to violate the very thing that they've told me not to do because I will not have someone ruling over me. I'm in charge. I'm the captain of my own destiny. I'm the chief of my own place. And certainly when God comes along, when Jesus Christ is a teaching rabbi comes along and tells me a rich young ruler that this is what I must do, I'm certainly not going to say I have no capacity to do that. And so how does he respond? Instead of the right response, he gives the absolute wrong response. He says, all these things have I kept from my youth up. You know, his sin was being exposed to himself right at that moment and he was either unwilling or unable or both to see it. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Here was a flesh who was attempting to be justified by the works of the law. Jesus said, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and do this. And he just gave a representative example. It's certainly not the totality of all the law. He simply gave him a few of the things that the law stipulates. And this man, instead of groveling, instead of coming to deep humility and faith and repentance, and instead of coming down on his knees and saying, Oh my God, I could never do that. You're telling me that this is the only way to inherit it. I'm telling you it can't be done. I've never met a man who could do this. I can't do this. This must be impossible. Instead, he says, 
I've kept these things from my youth up. Check. I've done it. You know what this man needed so desperately? He needed a solid, honest dose of the law. Because we know, as Paul has so clearly taught us there in that Romans 3.20 passage and Romans 7 and other places, Romans 4, that through the law, through the giving of the law, through the demand of the law, through the standard of the law, through the high and holy and good and gracious law that is, that is a reflection of the character of God, nobody can be like that. It's too high, it's too much, too far, too long, can't do it. No human being can do that. Only God can do that. And only God can do that because only God is good, you see. And what the law does is it shows me I can't do it. It gives me the knowledge of my sin. J.C. Ryle in his book Holiness, which we studied several of us last summer as men, captures the essence of what this rich young ruler should have understood when he writes these words. The first steps towards heaven are a deep sense of sin and a lowly estimate of ourselves. Would that sell in many churches today? I don't think so. Let him cast away, Ryle says, let him cast away that weak and silly tradition that the beginning of religion is to feel ourselves good. Let him rather grasp that grand scriptural principle that we must begin by feeling bad. And that, until we really feel bad, we know nothing of true goodness or saving Christianity. He's right. Until we are brought to the knowledge of our sin and what our sin does, and that only by the knowledge of the absolute perfect standard of the law of God, we know nothing of saving Christianity. He says, Happy is he who has learned to draw near to God with the prayer of the publican, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I can't do it, Lord. I can't. It's beyond me. It's, it's too much. I can't attain to it. I fall on my face before you and I say to you as the only one who is the essence of good, my sin is ever before me. I hate my sin. My sin has brought me to the place of violating the law, not keeping it. It's brought me to the place of knowing that the law condemns me. It doesn't save me. That's what the law does. That's the kind of understanding we have to have. That's the kind of understanding that this rich young ruler must understand. Not, I've kept these things since my youth up, but from my youth up I have violated every one of these things, if not in reality, but in my heart. And if that's not enough, there's a third aspect, third level, third channel of knowledge, and that's in verses 21 to 23. Through denial comes the knowledge of what we value. Through denial comes the knowledge of what we value. What do you mean? Look at verses 21 and 22. Looking at him, Jesus had a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. In other words, Jesus in this evangelistic encounter loves this man. You see, that's the kind of love that we need to have for those people around us, right? 
That's the kind of compassion that we need to have for people who don't know they're sinning. For people who don't even realize that the law comes to show them their sin, they're completely blind to it. He is so blind to his sin, and Jesus had a love for him because he knew how blind he was to his sin. You say, does that excuse sin? Not at all. But you cannot excuse sin in a person and have love for them at the same time. And Jesus wants to go right down to the root sin. I mean, you could say up to this point that all he's done is say, look, keep these kinds of principles in the law. And he says, I've done it all. But there has been no specificity. Now he goes right to the heart of the matter and says, look, I know that you have a lot of money. And so I'm going to go right to the heart of the matter. I'm telling you, go and sell all of your possessions, give it to the poor, and then you come and follow me and you will inherit eternal life. Knowing that there in that statement is the choice of denying your riches or denying your Creator. What's the choice going to be? Well, for this rich young ruler, verse 22, but at these words he was saddened, saddened. And he went away grieving. Why? Why was he grieving? Was he grieving over his sin? Was he grieving over the reality of his spiritual condition? Was he so remorseful about having amassed all of this material possessions? And now he's realizing that when I compare that with the reception of eternal life, life with God, a soul that is saved, my choice is, I'm not going to give up my riches. I'm not going to do it. He was grieving, all right. But he was grieving because he valued his riches more than he valued a relationship with God. Wouldn't you say, and wouldn't I say, and have we not ourselves experienced this same kind of choice? What do we value? You see, through the challenge of the gospel, through the challenge of denying self, comes the knowledge of what we value. And do you know what the gospel says? Jesus couldn't have put it any plainer when he said there was a man who saw a field and he saw a, a hidden treasure in that field and because he believed that that hidden treasure was so valuable so much to be grasped that he sold all that he had and he purchased the treasure hid in the field. And you know what the treasure hid in the field is? The gospel. Relationship with Christ. Redemption. Knowing that I can't save myself. Knowing that I'm going to have to take myself and I'm going to have to jettison myself of myself in order to grab the true riches, the riches that are not money and possessions, the riches called eternal life through the gospel of Christ. And he wasn't willing to do it. He wasn't willing to obtain the pearl of great price. He had the opportunity to follow Jesus. Boy, what an opportunity. What an opportunity to listen to the words of Jesus himself, to follow his teachings, to see his miracles, to affirm his deity to realize that he is the only Savior of the world. He says, no, 
can't do it. I won't do it. Did not Jesus himself say in Luke 12, 15 these words, Beware. Beware. And be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Oh, what a word from Christ. Oh, I could amass it all. I could have all the world's goods. Or I could even have just a little bit of it, but it would be better than the next guy. And if I have it, what else do I need? And Jesus says, beware, be on guard against every form of greed because as you're pursuing the stuff, your soul will be required of you. And your life inherently will not, shall not, cannot consist in the totality and the abundance of your possessions. Well, this is a, this is a saving word, isn't it? This is a word that speaks of salvation. This is a word that speaks of the ultimate denial, the ultimate choice. And fourthly and finally, through God alone comes the reality of salvation. Through God alone comes the reality of salvation. Look at verse 23. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, after this rich young ruler had taken off, after he had scrambled away, Jesus said, How hard it will be, men, disciples, for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were watching this whole scene. They heard the discussion. They saw his response. They watched him walk away. Jesus was grieved because of his great love for this man, and the man walks away, and this man was grieved because he wasn't willing to value salvation as over against his abundant possessions. And the disciples are watching this whole thing, and Jesus then widens the picture and says, not only this rich young ruler, but I'm going to tell you that it is impossible for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Is that what it says? You say, no, it doesn't say impossible there. It says hard. Well, apparently from the disciples' response, they may have very well thought he meant impossibility because the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again. He knew what was in their hearts. And he said to them, children, and that's an interesting use of that word, isn't it? Because he's just come out of that context of talking about childlikeness, childlike faith, humble dependence. Here's what you need to understand, little children, little dependent ones, little humble ones, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. I'll tell you how hard it is. In fact, it's so hard, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And then it says that the disciples responded, oh, okay, I see that. That's understandable. Sure, I mean, anybody can see that. I mean, I've seen camels go through the eye of a needle many times. I mean, sure, it's hard, but it's not impossible because certainly camels can go through the eye of a needle. I mean, we've all been witness to that. Jesus wants them to understand to such a degree that he uses what we might call a gross illustration. 
an illustration to the max. Camel going through the eye of a needle. That's how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Folks, I'd say that's pretty hard. In fact, I'd say that's impossible. That's impossible. And that's why the disciples said, well, then who can be saved? It's impossible, Lord. No camel can go through the eye of a needle. It absolutely cannot unequivocally happen. The disciples, they're understanding exactly what Jesus is saying. There's no misunderstanding here. I've heard interpreters trying to wrestle with this passage and give all kinds of ridiculous interpretations. It is exactly what Jesus is saying. His whole point is to show what he now says. With people, it is what? Impossible. The utter despair of the soul is to know that the only way that you can receive eternal life, whether you're rich or whoever you are, is to deny your own self, deny your own possessions, recognize that what the law done has brought you your sin. It hasn't brought you salvation. It's only brought you the knowledge that you could never be good enough and that your badness is completely and ever before you. Listen, the only possible conclusion to that kind of message is this. It is impossible. I can't do it. And Jesus says, men, you have the point. You can't do it. This rich young ruler cannot sadden and, and sorrowing go away and still think that there's a possibility. Right? Jesus is saying in the strongest possible language, I want everyone who walks away from me to realize this, that if you go any other way than the way I've told you, it is impossible. And by this time, I'm sure, you as I and the disciples themselves at the very moment are gasping for air. Well, then, how do we do it? And Jesus said, that's the point. You don't. God does. Oh, what a message. With man, it's impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Do you understand the, the chasm? You have on this side all men and total impossibility. You have on this side God in which all things are possible. Man, total impossibility. God, all things are possible. Boy, the declaration, the contrast couldn't be clearer. Is it clear to you? I praise God it's clear to me. And it wasn't because I figured it out. It wasn't because spiritual eyes suddenly came upon me. It was because God showed me by His grace, by His mercy. Has He shown you? J.C. Ryle concludes our message by saying this. The friends of purely secular education, the enthusiastic advocates of reform and progress, 
The worshipers of reason and intellect and mind and science may say what they please, but do all they can to mend the world. But they will find their labor is in vain if they do not make allowance for the fall of man. If there is no place for Christ in their schemes. There is a sore disease at the heart of mankind which will baffle all their efforts and defeat all their plans, and that disease is sin. Oh, that people would only see and recognize the corruption of human nature and the uselessness of all efforts to improve man which are not based on the remedial system of the gospel. Yes, the plague of sin is in the world, and no waters will ever heal that plague except those which flow from the foundation of all sin, a crucified Christ. That's the only way, folks. It's the only way. I stand before you as a, a herald of the gospel. And I tell you that if you're trusting in anything other than a crucified Christ, even to its most minute degree, if you're trusting in anything other than the perfect shed blood of Jesus Christ, you would be as this rich young ruler walking away sorrowing, saddened. Don't walk away sad today. Walk away blessed and glad and happy and thankful and in a gratified way because you know that with yourself it's impossible to achieve salvation. But with God, all things are possible. Do you praise God this morning? Let's bow together. Father, all things are possible with you. How could we ever, how could we ever come to a place of believing anything else? I know why, it's our sin. Our sin so blinds us and so fools us that it tells us that it is possible, that there is some remedy other than the crucified Christ. Or maybe it's the crucified Christ plus something I do. Oh, Lord, thank you for giving us the account of this rich young ruler. We don't know what happened to him. We don't know if he later came back and said, I understand now, take me, Christ. We don't know. All we're left with is the sorrowing words that he was grieved walking away because he owned much property. But we also know that each one of us sits here with the knowledge of our badness, the knowledge that the law brings to us, which is our sin, knowing that through this profound illustration of a camel going through the eye of a needle, I can't do it. You must do it for me. Then and only then can I be saved. Oh Lord, I pray that everyone here, especially in this Christmas season, when we celebrate the gift of the birth and death and resurrection of Christ, that we would trust only in Him. Bring those who are wrestling with this very issue to a place of faith and repentance, trusting only in Christ. And only then will, be, will we be rich toward God. Thank you for challenging our hearts. 
In Jesus' name, amen.